But let me, um, let me just start this morning by like, asking you this little question. How many of you know that? Uh, what is ultimately inside your bones leaks out into how you live? That, that what's inside your very life at its deepest level ultimately, sooner or later, will determine how you behave. Uh, and stuff comes to us from lots of different places, right? Um, it could be your family background. Laura and I are doing marriage prep with a couple at the moment, and it's helped remind us that a lot of what we brought to our marriage 15 years ago was actually from our parents and our upbringings and the different ways that we were taught. Um, could do with what area, uh, what place you grew up in. Uh, I've done a little bit of traveling over the US over the last year, and uh, I've, I've been learning just a little bit about the regional differences in the US, which are real, which are real. So anyone here from like New York, East Coast kind of way? Yeah, a few people. New York, like that's a thing, right? I haven't got it down, but that's a thing, right? Anyone from the South? I know you are. Like, th- now, that is real. Uh, that, that is real, isn't it, if you're from the South? Um, anyone from Texas? I- is that the South? Is it not the South? I- I- if you know the answer, could you just tell me afterwards? That would, that would really help me. Um, anyone from the Midwest? Come on. Now, I was in Kansas two weeks ago unbelievably nice people. Uh, I phoned up Laura and I was like, man, I could move to the Midwest tomorrow. Everyone is so nice here. It is so good. Um, But if you're not from the US, like I'm not from the US originally, um, your culture, your ethnicity, your background, all of that plays a lot into what's in your bones. I grew up in Hong Kong mostly. My wife Laura grew up in the UK. Our kids have absolutely no idea where they're from anymore. Like, (laughs) but it all plays into the story and, and where you live today. Where you find yourself seeps into your bones. Uh, Laura and I, we've been in the US for four years now. Uh, and I think on a really positive level, like we're changing all the time. Like, you know, I, I feel a little bit more confident, a little bit less like a bumbling Brit now. I have like a bit of a more positive outlook on the world. You know, I have big horizons for what's possible here. Um, I've also picked up some like slightly more strange habits. You know, I, like for example, I, I now know that when you see a sidewalk, that's not in LA for walking on, it's for driving past on your way to the gym where you do the walking or take a hike. You know, I didn't know that before, but I know it now, so that's good. You know? People said to me, like, what, what did you do on the coronation weekend? And I had to admit to them that actually I'd spent more of it talking about Cinco de Mayo, that I'd been to a NASCAR track, uh, that I'd been to an outlet mall, and then I'd taken my wife for a Philly cheesesteak for her birthday. You know, I was like, yeah, I, I, maybe I'm a bit different than I, than I used to be. But what's deep within us, what gets into our bones, what gets into our hearts, ultimately changes the way that we live. And these last weeks, we've been talking about what it means to be a vintage community, like a fine wine. What does it mean to be God's best, God's design for a community? And really, we've been talking about this idea of the new identity, the identity that you find in Christ, and that we've been talking about how you can get that identity into your bones, how you get it deep within you. And if you remember, as we set Ephesians out, chapters one to three is is all about that new identity in Christ. And then chapters four to six, which we'll get to soon after uh, focus, is going to be all about how you then live that out. That we're talking about how we talk, how we live outwards as a beautiful community, recognizing though that it starts with how we live inwards. That what we're going to ultimately live out in our lives and in the world is a reflection of what goes deep into our souls. 
And today we want to think more about how do we get it? How do we get our identity in Christ past head knowledge? How do we get it past ethics and behavior and all those things that people think Christians really think is the most important thing? How do we get our new identity deep, deep into our very bones? And so we're going to get our reading from Livy now. She's going to read from us, for us, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. So if you have your Bibles or if you've got a phone, always great to have that in front of you. But if not, it'll be up on the screens. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, a prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is as work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Amen. So this is an astonishing and a beautiful prayer that Paul prays. And he begins in verse 14 with these words, I kneel before the Father. You know, when you gave your life to Jesus, or if you would consider yourself on a spiritual journey and you're not quite there yet, at that moment of committing to Jesus, we too kneel before the Father. And Paul says that when you kneel before the Father, you are adopted into the family of God. And if you remember what Jacob said last week, he said that to be adopted in Roman culture was significantly better than being biologically born into a family. Because when you were adopted in, you were chosen by name. You were given this new identity. I don't know if you did see anything of the coronation last week. I promise I'll only mention it once. Um, but there was this moment which really caught my attention, which is, was this moment here. Um, and this is Prince William, uh, who's standing there. He's pretty much exactly the same age as I am. And he actually, after this, he knelt down in front of his father, the king, and he said these words. He said, I, William, Prince of Wales, pledge my loyalty to you and faith and truth I will bear unto you as your liege, man of life and limb, so help me God. Basically, what, what he was doing was the, is a recognition that as Charles became king, William got a new identity. He got a new role, Prince of Wales, which is like the second highest role within the country. And he knelt and basically said, as you give me this new identity, Charles, dad, I give you my life. And it's a little bit similar when when you give your life to Jesus, we come before him and we kneel and we say, I want you to be in charge. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to call the shots. I give you everything I have, God says of us. Welcome, child. Welcome in. You get this new identity in my family. 
And at the center of that identity is this deep truth that you are loved. That you are loved. Now, I don't know how you approach today. I don't know if you feel that. But this is a true reality guaranteed for all Christians that deeply, passionately, eternally, you are loved by God. Now, I, I know that on Mother's Day, like we approach these days with a whole mixture of emotions about our parents. Some of us have really great relationships with our parents and we like knew that we were loved and we still feel loved. Others of us have way more complicated relationships with our parents. Um, and some of us don't have a relationship with our parents whatsoever. But the beauty of becoming a Christian is to know deep down that you are loved by a good parent. A loving, dependable, kind, honest parent. And what Paul is helping us to see is that when you know that, really know that, it changes your life dramatically. Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, follow God's example, right? Live outwardly, therefore, as dearly loved children. And his prayer is, is that we would get this so, so deep in our bones. Verse 17, you can see on the screen there. And he prays that we, being rooted and established in that love. And there's actually two words there that you see there. The word rooted and most established, really important. Uh, the, the first one uh, is a gardening metaphor, as you can clearly see. Um, and I'm sorry if you've heard this story from me before, but a couple of years ago, uh, Laura and I, we moved into this new house and there was this patch of dirt. There it is outside our back door. And we had these kind of grand ideas. We were like, no more paying Ralph's prices for fruit and veg. We are going to grow our own environmentally friendly organic crops. Um, and so uh, we, we, we cleared the few weeds out the way. Uh, and we went down to Home Depot and we bought, you know, tomatoes and cucumbers and all these different things. And we came back and we planted them in the ground and put some water on them. And we stood back and we waited. And we waited. And everything died. <laughs> everything died. And a friend of ours, Ben Ellis, he was the worship pastor at the time. Because he's amazing at gardening, if you know him. And we said, hey, mate, like, what happened? Well, he said, well... Did you, did you dig over the soil and put like fertilizer and like manure in the soil? I was like, no, no, it's just kind of dirt. So, oh, well, okay, well, did you, did you put like irrigation in under the surface? No, 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 we didn't do that. And he said, well, when did you plant the crops? Did you, what time of year? And he said, well, we kind of planted them in the summer. <laughs> he went, well, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, and so the following year, um, Ben came over and, and together we dug over the soil properly. And we put these deep nutrients in and we put like a soaker hose in underneath. And then in the spring, not the summer, <laughs> we planted these crops and, and, and they took hold. And we watered them and we tended for them and they grew. And by the time the summer did come, they didn't just wither and die because they had deep roots into the soil, deep roots into the moisture, into the nutrients. They flourished and they thrived. And we had more tomatoes than we could possibly give away, even though we tried really hard. And Paul's basically saying that's the same that should be true of us as followers of Jesus. That we are supposed to have those kind of roots, hidden roots behind and before and beyond anything that anyone even knows about that go deep, deep down into the love of God so that he says we would be established 
established in it. The word established there is like a word that comes from architecture. It's about foundations. Knowing that you can't build a great building that's going to stand up to storms unless you have deep foundations. And Paul says that that is exactly the same that is true for us. We need God's love to be the very foundation on which everything else exists. The theologian and the pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Indeed, our chief defect as Christians is that we fail to realize Christ's love for us. Do you know Christ's love for you today? I think part of the problem as to why we don't always get this right is because the word love in English has become quite a cheap word, hasn't it? Like, I, I, we use words like, man, I love pizza. Like, oh, man, I love my sports team. Or you see, like, social media influence going, I love you, all my fans, so deeply. I never met you, but you gave me a like, so I love you, right? It's, it's almost like to say that we just have a kind of, like, good feeling about it. Love, though, is, is kind of shallow in that way. To love is really nothing more than to really want it or to really like it. Or, I think even sometimes, just to tolerate it. I don't know how many times I've said to my kids, like, I would so love it if you would just not fight right now. <laughs> it's like, I would love it if you could just go to bed. But love is cheap in those respects. And even if we take it onto a romantic level, which I think is better, even then it's not quite the full picture. I remember when Laura and I had been dating for a while and she came up to visit me at, as an undergrad at, at university and I took her up on this hillside. Like I didn't know what to say and so I took her up on this mountain and, and, and I just looked out over these hillsides and there was like, oh, I was like, Laura, I, I, I love you, <laughs> right? And, and, and I was just like, I was so embarrassed but, but what I was expressing was that, that deep down I had this this feeling so deep inside me that something was going on. And of course, that is love. And that's really good, except that I wonder if that's enough to say about God's love. Because if we think that God just feels a particular way about us, is that enough to express the fullness? Is it that God just says, oh man, you know, Ed, when I think of Ed, I just get this warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Or like, oh man, Josh, I just love Josh because I just feel all nice about when I think about Josh. I feel like the love of God is bigger than that somehow, isn't it? Because, because actually, when the Bible speaks about love, there's something more, something more that's going on. In fact, if you look um, in the New Testament of the Bible, there are these four words, four types of love. In fact, there's lots of words in Greek for love, but these are the four main ones. The first one, um, as you can see on the screen, it's, it's, it's eros love. It's erotic love. It's like, it's like a love that is sort of like passionate and red hot kind of love. But that's not actually how God is described as loving us. The second one is storge love, which is familial love. But even that isn't actually interesting how God is described as loving us. The third one is philia love, which is to be like a best friend, friendship love. Well, that's not, that's not how God is described as loving us. The actual way in the word that Paul uses is the word agape. 
And agape means something altogether different. It means a sacrificial love. Uh, Madeleine Delengel says it like this, agape love is a profound concern for the well-being of another without any desire to control that other, to be thanked by the other, or to enjoy the process. You see, the kind of love that the Bible describes is altogether different. It notice it's here in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his own agape love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And then, just a chapter later, this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live, in, live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Like, this is the kind of love that the Bible describes, which is altogether different and of a higher grade and a higher quality in a more encompassing way, is that we know the love of God because we look at Jesus and we look at the cross. And as we look at the cross of Jesus, we realize that the love that God has for us is deeply sacrificial. It wasn't that Jesus died because he thought he was going to get something out of it. He died for us. His love it was to lay down his life, to die for you, to die for me. It's a love that's unconditional. Like he didn't die for you because he thought, man, you know, they've done pretty well. They deserve it. No, actually, Jesus looked down from the cross as we were rebelling against him, as we were rejecting him, as we were hurling abuse at him, as we were betraying him. And in the midst of the agony of the cross, Jesus Christ stayed there and said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing right now. I love them. I love them. It's a permanent love. You know, every other type of love has this potential, I think, to to end, to be let down by. But the love of God is permanent. You can't do anything to gain it. You can't do anything to love it. You can't lose it. Even death cannot separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. There is no other love, nothing else that comes even close to this kind of love. I love what Donald Blausch says. He says, Eros is the desire to possess and to enjoy. Agape is the willingness to serve without restrictions, reservations. Eros is an ascending love that proceeds from the earthly to the heavenly. Agape is a descending love that proceeds from the heavenly to the sinful. Eros is attracted to that which has the greatest value. Agape goes out to the least worthy. Eros discovers value where agape creates value. Agape is a gift love where eros is a need love. Eros springs from a deficiency that must be satisfied. Agape is the overflowing abundance of divine grace. So much more than feelings. So much more than the warm mushiness inside. This is how God loves us. God knows everything about you. Worryingly for me, God knows the hidden stuff, the secret stuff, 
the doubts, the fears, the insecurities. God knows everything. And yet what he says as we look at the cross is, this is how much I value you. This is how much I am committed to you. This is how much I am for you. This is how much I will sacrifice for you. Like this, this is God's love for us. And God's desire is not that you would just know it or know about it, but it would go deep, deep into your very being. Because, because when it goes deep, when it goes deep into your being, it changes everything about who you are. You know, when our our kids were were small, uh, sometimes they would just like play up like badly. They would just behave really badly. And and I would, being the disciplinary dad, would be like, okay, there is bad behavior here. We must root out the cause and have consequences uh, for this. And sometimes Laura would be like, "Uh, like Ben, just hold on a minute. (laughs) Like, I think that their love tanks are just empty. I just, and I'm like, what, what's a love tank? <laughs> and they're like, I, I just, she says, I just, don't, I just don't think that they feel loved right now. And so she would scoop them up in her arms and she'd give them a big hug and she'd tell them how much she valued them and how loved they were. And usually she'd put some food in their bellies as well, which would really help, if I'm honest. And suddenly they'd, they'd transform. They, they, would be, they would be well, they would be happy. They would be contented. They would behave really well. And I think the same is often true of us as adults as well, is that we have that, that reality too, that when our love tanks are empty, when my love tank is empty, I live out of those, those wrong places too. You know, how easy is it when, when, our, when we don't feel loved to be people of comparison? Man, I just got to be better than the other person because if I'm better than them, then I've got value. Or, or like seeking validation, like just tell me how great I am because I need to hear how great I am. I'm going to or I'll put lots of things on social media to get likes or whatever it is. Like, I just, I just need to be validated to prove ourselves to trying to be liked and to stay liked or to act like a chameleon where we have to feel like we have to present a certain version of ourselves so that people will accept us for who we really are. Like workaholism, drivenness, revenge, you name it. You go on and on and on. Like these are the things that we can do when we feel just unloved when we feel rejected, when our love tanks are empty. But Paul's prayer in verse 19 for us is that we would know the love that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Because on the flip side, like to be loved, to know that you are loved is such a dramatic reality When I know that I am deeply loved, I can be at rest. I can be at peace. I know that that I am steeped in value and significance. I don't have to prove myself because the creator of the universe loves me. I can be fully secure in my future. I don't have to worry about what today or tomorrow might bring because I know that I am loved for all eternity by the one who flung the stars into space. I can be humble. I don't have to be recognized. I don't have to be honored. I don't even have to be treated well. I just can serve. I can be peaceful. I don't have to be insecure. And I think when we get this kind of love so deep in our our bones, it does change the way that we act. 
It does change the way that we live. It changes our relationship. It changes the way that we treat other human beings. It changes our sense of purpose. It changes even the way that we go to work and do our careers. Like everything changes when you know that you are so, so deeply loved. Yeah. But how do you do it? How do you do it? Because right, we can talk about that. But how do you get it so deeply within you? Well, Paul uses this word that we would grasp it. The Greek word is the word katalambano. Katalambano. That's actually Greek, so that's not the right. That's the wrong pronunciation. (laughs) But it means to be ambushed, to be surrounded and captured, captivated, thunderstruck by this reality. It's not just a a case where you go, ah, okay, so yes, Jesus died, he rose again, I get to have eternal life with him, excellent, done. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. It is to have a profound realization, an experiential realization. The word know there is the word gnosko. It means to experience it deeply that surpasses our knowledge that surpasses our brain even at times, that goes to the deepest places who we are. And the way Paul says that that happens is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know when you hear the, the word Holy, the term Holy Spirit, I don't know what immediately comes to your mind. Um, some of us are like, Holy Spirit, let me in. I'm like, get out of the way. We're all in for this. Others of us, honestly, not so much. You know, not so much. Maybe uh, you know we grew up in more of a Christian tradition, which was like Father, Son, and Holy Book. That was more our thing. Or maybe we've looked at stuff with the term Holy Spirit on it, and we've just looked at it and gone, yeah, a little bit weird. Like, it's not so sure that's for me. But the truth that the Bible gives us is that when you give your life to Christ, the gift that is given to you for the present. For the, for the now is the gift of the presence of God living deeply in you. The Holy Spirit coming to dwell with you to do what? To give you the greater revelation of who God is. To give you the greater revelation of his love. To give you the greater revelation of his plans and his voice and his purposes. And like, to be honest, like who wouldn't want that? That's a really important thing that we need. That when the Holy Spirit comes to a group of people, As John Owen says, it's like the great beautifier of our souls. Like he comes to change us and shape us and love us and help us to understand more fully the love of God. And I think, at least for me, I recognize I deeply need that. Like I deeply need that in all my flaws and my failings. And it's not just that I deeply need that. If you look at all the great saints of history, so often they can point to these moments when the Holy Spirit has come and revealed the Father's love for them. D.L. Moody, he famously said this. He said, I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom even refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Such was the love of God that overwhelmed him. And I know that many of us in this room, we can point to moments too along our work journey when God's love has so overwhelmed us 
Sometimes those can be spectacular big moments. Sometimes they can just be quiet, simple ones. And I said I was in, I was in Kansas uh, the week before last. And I was there for a conference of all of our churches in our network all across the US with Bishop Todd. And we had a great time. Um, but I had a few hours off uh, one afternoon. And uh, Laura phoned me and she said, hey, Ben, you know you're in Kansas City, right? And I said, yes, yes, I, I know I'm in Kansas City. She says, do you know that the International House of Prayer is in Kansas City? And I was like, oh, yeah, I've completely not put two and two together. And so she, she said, like, uh, you, should, you should go. And I thought, oh, well, it's probably like miles away because Kansas City is really big. And I was not in the middle of Kansas City at all. So I looked it up on the map and I realized like the House of Prayer was literally like nine minutes from where I was staying. And so I, I went down, like had a couple of hours off, so I went down to the house of prayer and it's like this really big kind of campus, like church building and you, and you go in and you sit and people are praying and there's wonderful worship going on. And I just sat for half an hour with the Lord and it was, it was lovely, it was an amazing, beautiful time. But you know, I left and as I left, like, there was a woman on the reception and just, we just got chatting for a moment and she just so happened to be from Pasadena. And she said, oh, you should come back tomorrow because we have these prophetic prayer appointments and people can pray for you. Um, she said, the only thing is, though, that you have to be here by one and you line up in a big line because we only have so many appointments and people come from all over the world for them. And if you're not here by one, you won't get one. And then we'll probably have time to pray for you later in the afternoon. Uh, and so I looked at my, my, my schedule and I was like, wow, well, the conference finishes at 12.45. Like if I, get to, if I race down there, I could get there. And so I, I drove down. I was the last person in the line that they saw that day. And they gave me this appointment and you, you go and sit in a big church and you'll sit in these seats and... You sit quietly, and, and after a while, someone just tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you know, can, can we pray for you? So I, I followed uh, these people into this little room. Um, and this woman, uh, there's three people there, this woman from their prayer ministry team just looked at me, and she said, were you here yesterday? I was like, yes, for 30 minutes, I, I was here yesterday. She said, the strangest thing, I was just, yesterday, I was walking down the corridor, and you walked past me in the other direction. And, and I just felt then that the Lord immediately highlighted you to me and, and said that I should pray for you. But, but she said, but before I could do that, you'd walked out of the building and I didn't know what to do. And she said, when I saw that I was supposed to pray for you today, like I couldn't believe it. And she went on and told me these things that she felt that the Lord had particularly given her for me. Now, she didn't know me. She didn't know anything about me, but she just went on to give these prophetic words about God's love for me about his affirmation, about his kindness. She, knew, she said some very specific things which she could never know. And, and it was just beautiful. It was incredible. And I stood up and I, and, I, and I left that place almost in tears because I just felt known. I felt loved. I thought, what kind of God do we have that would ordain this kind of moment that even though I'm like a thousand miles from my home and I have a couple of moments free in an afternoon, that she would ordain this moment so that God would ordain this moment so that I can meet with him in this way. You know, I believe that God has moments for each of us, moments when he wants to expand our vision, expand our eyesight to more fully experience his love in the beautiful things, in the mundane things, in the noisy moments and in the quiet moments. And I believe it's kind of in that process of more fully knowing the love of God that we become the kind of church that we're always called to be. What does a vintage church look like? Well, I want to suggest it looks like a church of people who are being continually, overwhelmingly filled and experiencing the love of God. 
As John Stott said, the Holy Spirit did come on the day of Pentecost, but he's never left his church. But here's here's the truth, church, which I think we need to be honest about. We will experience as much of God's love as we want to. We will experience as much of the presence of the Holy Spirit as we choose to. What I mean is this, is that God is the kind of God who who doesn't come and ambush us. He doesn't come, like, get us in a headlock and go, come on now, here I am, can you see me? He doesn't. He's too gentle, he's too patient, he's too kind. He waits for us. He waits for us. Every week we pray in this church, come Holy Spirit, knowing really that the Holy Spirit is already moving, he's already working, but he's waiting for us as to whether or not we're going to step in whether we're going to make the move, whether we're going to come forward into his presence because what he's waiting for is for us to step forward and say like, we're here, we're kneeling before you, we love you. And as we say we love you, he comes and embraces us and opens our eyes. You know, let's just be honest, how easy is it to come to a church or a worship gathering or prayer meeting and, you know, just go through the motions and, you know, especially if we've had a tough week and we just made it, barely made it to church, we, we just go through it and we go home. And we say, well, God, where were you? Why didn't you meet me? Whereas I I think there is an invitation from the Lord, which is like, even if that's your reality, step in. Even if it feels uncomfortable and weird, step in. Even if you feel a little bit like unreserved, step in. It's why in in worship we say, like, come, let's, let's worship. Let's raise our arms. Let's come to the front. Let's move. It's not that those things are special in themselves, but they're symbols of saying, we are here, God, for you, and we want to meet with you. You know, when we, we, we say, come and get prayer ministry, what we're really doing is saying, come, because the prayer ministry team are going to pray with you and minister the love of God to you. Our prayer ministry team are not trained just to pray for knees or ankles. They are trained to invite the Holy Spirit and minister God's love to you. That's what they do. You know, whether we do it in prayer meetings, wherever we do it, the invitation is come and push in because as you come in more deeply, you will experience more deeply the Father's love that transforms us, shapes us, molds us into who we were made to be. And I think in terms of us as a church, it's this invitation which is such a beautiful invitation to become that which we are called to be as a new church plant. You know, I think when we grasp hold of this kind of love, it changes even how we be a community. Cyril of Alexandria, famously an old church father, he said, all of us have received the one same spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, are in a sense being blended together with one another and with God. You see, when our love tanks are full of God, we more fully become ready to be the kind of community that God wants to inhabit the world. When we are full of God's love, we can stand in a world which is full of division and hatred and we can say, we will love. We can stand in the midst of people dividing and falling out with one another and we can say, we will prefer and love and serve each other. And it's like a flag that we fly almost over this building, over this church community that says, love. And even if the world doesn't understand what love is, we say, this is love. And we want you to know it too. And in fact, and I finish with this one final thought that Paul gives us, that it's actually even beyond just doing it to the city. 
He says in verse 10 that his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known where? To the rulers, to the authorities, to the heavenly realms. Like God's love is so massive, it's so deep, it's so profound that when we get it within us, we fly a flag to say not just to the world, this is what love is, but we actually fly a flag to the whole of the created order, to the whole of the universe, to every heavenly being saying this is love. Can you see it? Do you know it? Would you like to experience it more fully today?